0: Changing the culture in the legal community requires change from all parties. For students and clerks, it is standing up for yourself. From law schools is changing the messaging. On the judiciary side, it is the message that judges who mistreat their clerks shouldn't be judges.
1: You are listening to You Are a Lawyer. I'm Kyla DeNano, a 2015 law school graduate. This episode is brought to you by me. (laughs) Seriously, I'm selling merchandise at ShopYouAreLawyer.com. That's where you can find water bottles, long and short sleeve t-shirts, and everything you need to support the You Are Lawyer podcast. So support your favorite lawyer's favorite podcaster and visit ShopYouAreLawyer.com to grab some merchandise. Aliza, thank you for joining me today on the You Are Lawyer podcast. I am so excited to hear all about your story. So you are... Started, founded a company called the Legal Accountability Project. And it's all about judicial clerkship. So, were you a judicial clerk? I was. I
0: founded the Legal Accountability Project, a nonprofit aimed at ensuring that law clerks have positive clerkship experiences while extending support and resources to the ones who don't, following my clerkship experience in DC Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term.
1: Okay, very cool. So, when I hear judicial clerkship, it sounds really important, really fancy. Do you take on a judicial clerkship because you want to become a judge in the future or what's the pipeline? Good question.
0: So the legal community has really messaged clerkships as a necessary checkbox for your next legal job and or a gold star, like a very fancy item on the resume. It really is the necessary checkbox for many legal jobs in government, in big law. Uh, If you think of legal academia, most professors have clerked. So it's definitely become an important aspect of the legal profession, and clerking is a very valuable experience. You get a crash course in trial lawyering, you learn about judicial decision making, you hone your writing and research skills, but there's really a lack of information, a lack of transparency in the application process, and considering the outsized influence that a clerkship and a relationship with your judge you're gonna have on your future career success, there really needs to be more standardization and transparency in the processes by which students obtain clerkships.
1: What I love about that is that it sounds like you can find value in having a judicial clerkship no matter what you do. Big law, you know, you get trial experience, you get all these other things. Did you find your judicial clerkship through the typical on-campus interviews that happen when firms come every spring and try to, to get students? I did not.
0: So the clerkship application process has really resisted any efforts at standardization. Law schools really consider clerkships to be their purview. Every school does it a little bit differently and whether you are a student or an alum thinking about clerking several years out, you will go back to your law school for support, resources, assistance, and references. My process, I was applying for clerkships in 2017 and 2018. That was before the current iteration of the OSCAR hiring plan. That is the online system for clerkship application and review for federal clerkships. So now judges who hire on plan are not supposed to consider applications until 2L June. Uh, It kind of ensures that people have more grades. It's, It's an effort at standardizing processes a little bit. Unfortunately, many judges don't comply with the plan. I was pre-planned, and I was also a transfer, which necessitated me sending out a lot of paper applications because I didn't have WashU grades when I was starting to apply for clerkships. Um, I applied for a lot of federal clerkships, decided I wanted to clerk in DC Superior Court, which is the local trial court. I was interning at DOJ full-time at summer and fall, so I literally walked my applications over to the DC Superior Courthouse, it was across the street from DOJ. Um, so I definitely utilized WashU's services to help me obtain a clerkship to the extent that their services help people get clerkships.
1: <laughs> yeah. And is WashU Washington University?
0: Yes. I went okay. to Washington University and St. Louis School of Law.
1: Okay. All right. Very cool. So I'm laughing that you were still having paper applications in 2017.
0: <laughs> so there are many judges still require paper applications today in 2023.
1: <laughs> and that's a problem
0: Well, it's a problem for a couple reasons. If you go to a top law school, your law school will probably pay for you to print and submit those applications. If you don't go to a top law school or you don't go to a well-resourced school, the onus is on you to pay for those. That is bad. Additionally, there is no transparency in what judges are looking for in terms of an application. You just need to know that judge whatever in this circuit requires a paper application. And if you don't, too bad for you.
1: That's a problem. Yeah, I'm over here like, no, oh my gosh, what? That's crazy. So we jumped right in and we got to get some background. But first, did you enjoy your judicial clerkship experience? (laughs) No, I did not. Okay, so I asked that because did you create the Legal Accountability Project because you did not enjoy your experience or because you knew it could have been better for others and you want to make it better for the future?
0: Definitely the latter. And that is really important. I encourage everybody to consider clerking, but students and alums need to be mindful about where they clerk and who they clerk for in a way that they cannot right now. The Legal Accountability Project's goal is to make clerkships better for more people, recognizing that there are judges right now who mistreat their clerks, who create an overly hierarchical or unsupportive work environment, those clerks need resources on the back end and we help them too we are realistic about clerkships and i feel so strongly the messaging around clerkships is uniformly positive rather than realistic and that is a real problem it sends a message to students that if you that any clerkship is worth it for the professional gains even if it is challenging and by challenging, what we really mean is workplace mistreatment. Um, that is really toxic messaging I seek to combat.
1: Yeah, so I saw you there with the air quotes around challenging. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. I love why. Talking I, this, yeah. I just saw like Naomi Campbell throwing a phone and hitting like her assistant in the head. Um,
0: so yeah, this is actually something I want to dive into a little yeah. bit. One aspect of the uniformly positive messaging around clerkships. Now, one is the clerkship director and the deans who are really encouraging clerkships. Um, They're not realistic about the potential downsides of clerking. They are not realistic about the fact that not everybody has a positive experience. Now, that's one group. The other group messaging clerkships is professors who really are serving as mentors and shaping the next generation of young attorneys. Now the messaging from some professors is, I had a challenging clerkship experience. It was worth it for the professional gains. That is really dangerous messaging. And in conjunction with the nonprofit, I do a lot of law school programming. We visited more than 20 law schools this year for programming. Had several professor moderators say during the event, and then a couple to me after, some semblance of that. I had a challenging clerkship, it was worth it for the professional experience. No one should willingly endure a challenging clerkship because that is a euphemism for mistreatment and that is terrible. And we should be trying to create the profession we want, not the one that exists now, not the one that existed 30 years ago. And it's really sad, the messaging in like the legal profession generally and other professions fortunately now, is that people should kind of stand up for themselves and feel empowered to bring their full selves to work. That is has not, um, that messaging has not come to the judiciary yet. And people are still given the message that they should keep their heads down, stay silent in the face of mistreatment. People just want to move on. The right professional decision is not to report. Those are all things I heard when I was thinking about filing complaints, speaking publicly. That is the messaging that still exists. And it's really, really sad. And I obviously feel really strongly.
1: No, you do. But I love that. And that's why we're talking about it. Because when I hear judicial, for one, I'm a big nerd. So I'm like, oh, my goodness, you got to go to a court. Oh, this is so great. Like, you got to see all the ins and outs, the behind the scenes. Amazing. But I can also understand how that role seems to be, like, such a privileged place that it's, like, you only get so much time there. Just enjoy it. Right? So I kind of... Unfortunately, I can see why they're like, yeah, but these are just the uh, the growing pains of being a clerk because now you yep. get all the rewards, but I can, I can also see how that's problematic.
0: That's correct. And changing the culture in the legal community requires change from all parties. For students and clerks, it is standing up for yourself. From law schools it is changing the messaging. It is changing how we get students information about judges. On the judiciary side, it is accountability, it is discipline, it is training, it is the message that judges who mistreat their clerks shouldn't be judges.
1: Because why, I mean, what's the incentive of mistreating a clerk besides just the fact that you can and you're in power? You know what I mean? Hopefully it's that shallow. I guess it could be deeper. (laughs)
0: I think it really it makes a statement about a judge's poor character, not it says nothing about the clerk's character. It probably does indicate that something deeper is going on that is wrong, and it probably spills over into how they are treating litigants, how they are treating the attorneys who appear before them. It's typically not an isolated incident. But we're really thinking about we need to think about raising the bar for workplace civility in the judiciary. These are the folks who enforce and interpret the laws. They are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is outrageous that they are above the laws they enforce. And I was talking with someone the other day who basically said, you know, there are so many rules in the judiciary in terms of how you file things, a filing will be rejected if you miss one, comma, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and yet the judges themselves think they should not be subject to any laws or policies that regulate their workplace conduct. Why is that?
1: (laughs) completely get that so I know in Washington DC you probably had to have been a lawyer before you could become a judge I know there are some small counties and states where you don't have to be a lawyer to become a judge but I bring that up because lawyers we have to study professional responsibility when we're in school we have to take that as part of the bar exam so it's weird that you would study all of this and then when you become a judge you get to kind of throw it away and say now I can do whatever I want
0: definitely And there are various bar rules. There are judicial codes of conduct for both state judges and federal judges. The thing is, those are just not enforced. Mm -hmm. It requires filing of a complaint. It requires oversight by fellow judges. And judges are just notoriously unwilling to discipline their colleagues, which is a problem when the judiciary wants to message this whole self-policing, self-discipline, we can self-regulate, well.
1: So, Aliza, I have to ask, when you went to law school, were you expecting to become this advocate for judicial clerkship (laughs) accountability? Like, where did this come from? I mean, not where did it come from, but what did you intend to do when you went to law school?
0: So I went to law school thinking I wanted to be a reproductive rights litigator. I wanted to be a trial attorney at Planned Parenthood. Pretty early in law school, I got the prosecutor bug. I spent my 2L spring in the Southern District of Illinois U.S. Attorney's Office, where I got to do a supervised release revocation hearing. Stood up in federal court and said, Elisa Schatzman, Your Honor, for the United States. And that was just a really surreal feeling. And I just knew that I wanted to be a homicide prosecutor in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. They are federal prosecutors prosecuting local crime. It's a unique position. So I did four different internships at DOJ throughout law school to kind of get a breadth of criminal law experience, did all the things to set myself up for success, and one of those was a clerkship. So I knew that I went to law school to advocate for issues that I cared about. I never wanted to do big law. I never wanted to do kind of like commercial litigation. Um, But this opportunity kind of presented itself following my own negative clerkship experience and... I really think of the nonprofit and my advocacy work now as correcting injustices that I personally experienced, including a lack of transparency in the clerkship application process and a lack of accountability for judges who mistreat their clerks.
1: Yeah, I love that. So started with wanting to do advocacy. And how did you end up in the Southern District in Illinois? Are you from there or you just saw the opportunity and took it? So it is right across the border
0: from St. Louis where Washi was located. So I was able to do that two or three days a week as an externship opportunity. Um, Southern District of Illinois is an excellent US Attorney's office. It's a little bit remote and people in the Midwest kind of think of Chicago. Sometimes they think of Eastern District of Missouri, which is St. Louis, but SDIL is an excellent place. Okay.
1: Um, That's pretty cool. I'm in Ohio. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Illinois is my good little buddy across <laughs> Indiana. We forget Indiana. Um, <laughs> so, Eliza, I, okay. So, one of my questions was, did the Legal Accountability Project start as a passion project and it gained traction? Or did you start talking about it and kind of grumbling with friends and they were like, I bet this is a bigger issue. And that's how it kind of formed. Do you remember how it kind of got started? So, not
0: exactly either. Um, (laughs) So, following my clerkship, I participated in the formal judicial complaint process in the summer and fall of 2021. I discovered during that time that law clerks are exempt from Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, Folks like me, who experience harassment and retaliation, cannot sue our harassers and seek damages for harms done to our lives. Real I found way. out, oh,
1: yeah. I'm sorry, Lisa. can I jump in? So of course. Immediately, your podcast. After, <laughs> immediately after your clerkship, you were like, wait, I gotta tell someone about this. You knew when you were leaving, you were like, no, I'm gonna file a complaint. I gotta, I gotta go through all of their steps.
0: Um. So I experienced harassment and gender discrimination during my clerkship. I was fired in late April, 2020, when the judge told me that I made him uncomfortable and lacked respect for him, reached out to HR, They told me there was nothing they could do. Reached out to my law school to WashU, found out the judge had a history of harassing his clerks. So at that time, I decided I did want to file a judicial complaint, connected with some judges who directed me to the DC Commission on Judicial Disabilities and Tenure. Drafted my complaint then, decided to wait to file it till I had a new job, because I was already worried the judge would retaliate against me. Took me a year to get back on my feet after that, started working in the DC US Attorney's Office, And I was two weeks into training when I received some really devastating news, found out the judge had made negative statements about me during my background investigation, was told that I wouldn't be able to obtain a security clearance and that my job offer was being revoked. So that is when I filed my judicial complaint, hired attorneys, participated in the investigation into the now former judge. I share this experience a lot now, and I think it's really important to underscore that my experience as a clerk, while not rare, is one that is rarely shared publicly due to the culture of silence and fear of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. And it's one of the biggest things that I seek to combat is this really toxic culture of silence and fear. Um, I don't remember anybody talking about the downsides of clerking when I was a law clerk. And to this day, even as I interface with the judiciary, people are decently willing to recognize that harassment happens. They are much less willing to broach the subject of retaliation. And it's so important because fear of retaliation by judges, the most powerful members of our profession, is what keeps law clerks silent. And there is explicit retaliation in it because a law clerk filed a complaint, I am going to speak badly about them. In references, I'm going to preclude them from securing their dream job. But there is also, in, uh, there's also more insidious retaliation, which is there's a hundred candidates up for a job. You're one of them in the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Public Defender's Office. Those are great examples because those folks appear before judges every single day. So your potential employer calls the judge and says, what did you think about this clerk? And he just says they were fine. That has the effect of pretty much destroying your career. And I think people are just not willing to recognize the enormous power that judges continue to exert over their former clerks' lives and careers.
1: Yeah, and I love that you decided to speak out on it, right? Because to me, hearing the story, it sounds absolutely devastating. You spent your time, you worked, and then you were given a bad reference. Your job was revoked. Like, that is, (laughs) that's terrible. And then to find out that it was all out of retaliation, Right. And so, what I love is that you said, Hey, I'm not going to say that clerkships should absolutely be banned. We're done with them. You know, if judges can't do it right, then we're just not going to have them. No. Why can't we just hold judges accountable so that people can continue to learn from clerkships? It can just be a better experience. Right. And in preparing for the show, I saw, um, I was studying about the clerkship database at the legal accountability project has, which I absolutely love. You had a part on the website where you say the clerkship database replaces whisper networks. Yes. And I love that because part of this podcast, the reason I created it was because people were whispering, Oh, I didn't pass the bar. Oh my goodness. I'm not sure if I'm going to pass. And I'm like, no, we're going to shout this out. Right? So Aliza, can you tell me a little bit about the whisper networks?
0: So the clerkship whisper network is a concept that's kind of been discussed publicly a little bit for the past couple of years. And what it really means is that when you say to students, so you want a clerk, great. How are you going to avoid judges who mistreat their clerks? They might say they'd ask somebody, but really, who are they going to ask? Some law school admins continue to tell students to, quote, do their research about judges before applying. What research are you gonna do when there is no publicly available information about judges who mistreat their clerks? The Whisper Network is kind of the backdoor, secretive, fear-infused process by which some former clerks with information about judges who mistreated them or mistreated their friends in the courthouse will sometimes share that information with law clerks to reach out. Not always, they are actively dissuaded from speaking ill even about a judge who mistreated them, But then there's a bigger issue with law school administrators, clerkship directors, deans, professors, tasked with the important role of ensuring student and alumni wellness, ensuring alumni well being long after they graduate, and who have a duty of care to their students, choosing to withhold information about judges who mistreat their clerks from students in order to fluff their clerkship numbers. It's not every law school administrator, but it is too many. They tell me that they are conflicted about whether to share negative information with judges about with students who need it. There is no conflict. And that is so wrong. And it needs to be discussed publicly. It is the first step toward correcting this enormous injustice.
1: Because in your context, whispering is not good. It's people saying, hey, you know, that judge is kind of sleazy. So yeah, well, I get it now.
0: Through the Whisper Network, information is not uniformly shared with the people who need it, students and young alumni considering a clerkship. The information needs to be available to those who need it. Um, Whispering to me suggests fear. And we continue to perpetuate this culture, culture of fear and deification of the judiciary. It starts 1L fall. It's how... Judges and the judiciary are messaged on these law school campuses.
1: And so law schools actually pay to be included in the clerkship database, is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes. (laughs) How did you get law schools to actually pay to start participating and actually giving more information to make clerkships more accountable and make judges more accountable for their actions?
0: It is really hard. I spent a lot of time building relationships of trust and mutual respect. Starting with the schools that were friendliest and circling back with the ones that are less friendly, I quit my job to get the legal accountability project off the ground. And I started having conversations with a couple dozen law school deans and clerkship directors about their clerkship resources to help students avoid judges who mistreat their clerks. We launched officially in June. Um, throughout the summer, that I upped that number to about 70 law schools' worth of deans and clerkship directors that I was in touch with. And the first conversations were, how do you help students avoid judges who mistreat their clerks, do you share information about judges who mistreat their clerks with students, tell me about your resources. found out that a handful of schools conduct a post clerkship survey of their law clerk alumni, some keep those in internal databases they understand that those don't really capture the scope of the problem, because law clerks who've experienced mistreatment are just notoriously unwilling to report that back to their law schools. And the tone of some of these post clerkship surveys is basically, you had a positive clerkship experience, right? So law school's information about judges that they share with students is incomplete, incomplete at best. And What I initially thought, I initially thought this should be an internal database for every school, recognizing that only a few schools had them. Then I realized there's still going to be these problematic silo effects whereby a handful of schools hoard information about judges who mistreat their clerks. They may share that with their own students. In my experience, they really don't. They certainly don't share it with the other students who need it. And while it's fine to go to a more well-resourced school that will help you get a clerkship, there shouldn't be a horse race for the basic truth about clerkships, which is that some are excellent experiences, some are hostile work environments. So we eventually conceptualize this centralized database which democratizes information about judges, ensuring that students have as much info about as many judges as possible before they make what's clearly a really important career decision, We are having law schools send out our post-clerkship survey to all of their law clerk alumni, which is a huge number of people. They'll create an account with LAP. They can submit a survey anonymously if they choose. We think law clerks who've experienced mistreatment will report anonymously. These mechanisms, which ensure anonymity for law clerks who seek it and nationalize this information sharing, vastly expand the breadth of info and the candor of responses, accessible not only to students and young alums considering a clerkship, but also for clerkship directors and deans advising students on the process who also want more information about judges. What it does is it empowers students with access to information, because right now at some law schools, a clerkships director or a professor is the gatekeeper for clerkships. They will tell me, everybody who wants a clerkship comes to me. Well, no, that is not true. It means particularly historically marginalized groups, women, non-white folks, LGBTQ, first gen students, the people who disproportionately lack access to formal networks and information channels in the first place, are probably not going to go to the white male professor who is the gatekeeper for clerkships. Nothing against white men, but there are many people for whom they want to kind of they want the experience of applying for a clerkship to resonate with the person who's advising them. So this gives students, this empowers them with the information they need, whether they want to research every single judge before they apply, whether they want to blanket the you know, national landscape with applications and do research on judges 48 hours before their interview, whether they want to go to a clerkship's director who now has much more info and have those one-on-one conversations, It's going to help more people get better clerkships. So that's kind of how I message it. I tell law schools that no school has a monopoly on information about judges, and that nobody knows about all the judges, though three clerkships directors told me they know about all the judges. (laughs) Every school has a ceiling on the number they can keep track of, which totally depends on who their alums have clerked for in the past, as well as their willingness to report back on their experiences. And we see, because we watch the news, that judges are being appointed and leaving the bench all the time. So nobody knows about all the judges. And then on the back end, it empowers students with access to more
1: information. Absolutely. I love that you said it democratizes the information, right? It's there for them if they want it. If they don't need it, at least it's there. Now you have the database of, of information, so... Yes. That's really good. So one of the things you mentioned, the Legal Accountability Project wants to use data collection, analysis, programming, and partnerships to quantify harassment, discrimination, and diversity. Okay. And you even said it, that includes non-white people. So are there people that work at the Legal Accountability Group that are diverse as well? Or is it that you are just working for the diversity of all the students?
0: Good question. I mean, I am a woman, so I consider myself to be diverse and I have definitely diverse interns, but I mean, I am a solo founder and the solo leader. So while our board is certainly diverse and growing and that is super exciting, um, it is about protecting the next generation of students and diversifying not only the clerkship applicant pool, but the legal profession generally, because we know a couple things. I mean, there's a real lack of data that the judiciary produces on both misconduct and diversity in hiring. First step toward crafting an effective solution to any of these issues, misconduct, lack of diversity, quantifying the scope of the problem. The only org that releases any data on law clerks and diversity issues is now the National Association for Law Placement. They release it every couple of years and it's only for clerks going straight into a clerkship post-grad, not capturing everybody. I think the 2019 data showed that 79% of clerks were white and more than half were male. Homogeneity in clerkships has implications not just for fairness in judicial decision-making, who's writing and researching and advising on the opinions, but it also has implications for the future of the profession. As we think about who rises to and through the profession, to and through the judiciary, Diversifying the upper echelon starts with diversifying clerkship hires. But as we talked about, historically marginalized groups disproportionately lack the information they need. And I receive the most outreach actually, interestingly, I'm not sure why, from LGBTQ students asking me who are the friendly judges to apply to, conveying to me they choose not to clerk because they don't know who is sympathetic to their diverse identities, but they would clerk if they had this information which is one reason why I so enjoy and think it's so important to interface with some of the affinity bar associations, who I appreciate are helping us send out our post clerkship survey, who advise me on issues and teach me things I don't know enough about and need to learn more about. Um, But yeah, diversifying the profession starts with diversifying clerkships.
1: I wanna say what you're doing is awesome, but honestly, I'm like tongue tied. Because I see you on like LinkedIn, and I I was on the website, and I'm like, what do you mean it's just you and some interns? I feel like it was this whole like big force. <laughs> like this is incredible. You are doing such good work.
0: This is- Thank you. This is like what I do 24 seven. I mean, I work seven days a week. Um, it's it's not ideal, but it's what we're doing right now. I have an excellent board who help me with a lot of things. They are mentors. They me with everything and just interns i really trust uh it's a lot but um i care deeply about these issues i think it helps that i'm advocating based on my personal experience i think that galvanizes me to keep going i think it gets me in the door probably with some more challenging potential stakeholders but it's certainly a lot I look forward to when we've raised enough money to hire people to help me <laughs> so I can work maybe only six days a week.
1: <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. But I mean, that's how it is when you first start anything. So, Oh, totally. Yeah, that, that just makes me so excited that you're doing all of this because a lot of times people will say like, oh, I want to do something or I have like the burn or the itch to do something, but it's just me. And you were like, no, if it's just me, that means I know how much work will get done because like I know what I can do.
0: Yeah. But I think that being a founder is definitely about recognizing your limitations and things where you need help. So like the tech side, I have no tech experience. So we have engineers who built the database and then somebody built the website and I get help learning how to revise it. And then I spend the time making the revisions myself so I know how to do it. But like, it's been a process. And fortunately, I have a board member with a lot of tech experience who helps me with like the spec and providing feedback on various aspects of the project, but I am still learning. And it's it's about knowing my limitations and knowing I probably should not invest like several hours trying to figure out how to update the website. Like somebody can help me with
1: that. Yeah, definitely. You got to like figure out your zone of genius and you're like, could I do it? Maybe. Should I do it? No. There's a much better use of your time for those four hours. So, (laughs) um, okay, so this is really cool. So I have to ask, you're doing a lot of public speaking. Did that start because you literally needed to go to the law schools and say, hey, I've been a clerk and this is why it's important? Or were you always passionate about public speaking?
0: Good question. Um, I've always enjoyed public speaking. I've always enjoyed writing. In conjunction with my written testimony before the House Judiciary Committee last year, I published some articles and went on some podcasts and enjoyed it and thought the first step in terms of furthering the advocacy work would be some law school programming. So I initially reached out to my alma mater to WashU for programming. And then when we decided to launch the nonprofit, I decided that law school programming was going to be a huge aspect. So we planned out this whole fixing our clerkship system tour that's taken us to more than 20 law schools. And it's led to a lot of different programming opportunities with bar associations and nonprofits and some teaching some CLEs, which is cool. I think I've reached a lot of people, but I haven't reached everybody. There are still people who don't know that Gio is exempt from Title VII. There are plenty of people in the legal community who don't realize how big a problem, mistreatment, lack of diversity are in the clerkship system And so we're still reaching people. And so it's important for me to go there and share my experience in various places. I look forward to the day when other law clerks feel more empowered to share their experiences as well. But like trying to underscore that my experience isn't a rare one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I just have two questions, right? Um, The first one is you said that you quit your job last year because you were like, you know what? I'm going all in seven days a week, all of my time with the Legal Accountability Project. What was the job you quit and what's it been like so far?
0: Yeah. So I was working at a family law firm. I worked there for about six months. Um, My boss was somebody who I met during my clerkship and I was really kind of just looking for a job, honestly, while I went through the judicial complaint process and tried to figure out what was next. At that time, I definitely still wanted to be a homicide prosecutor and took steps to try to make that happen. You know, following my written testimony before the Judiciary Committee and the positive response to that, I realized that I wanted to dedicate my life and career to correcting these injustices. I realized what an enormous problem this was and that no nonprofit, no organization was addressing it. It's been going well. It's a lot. (laughs) Um, We've made several pivots uh, since we launched. Um, I appreciate... A lot of positive feedback from friendly deans from judges um i i appreciate advice from mentors you know as, as things don't go as we expected we just kind of pivot and try something new i think i definitely overshot the timeline for getting law schools on board with this database that's okay like founders that happens it's the first year um there are some law schools that are less than fully receptive and i think For them, you know, I am not going anywhere. I mean, I made decisions about the messaging for the nonprofit. We made decisions about where to invest resources and what schools we thought would be receptive, would be priorities. But my goal is to reach everywhere, whether you are a T5 or a regional school or somewhere in between, whether you send 100 clerks per year or two, those clerks, those
1: students need to know about these issues. Yeah, I love that because I'm thinking about my own experience and I definitely went to a smaller school and I just don't remember hearing about clerkships. Like, I don't know if it's like a a top five percent of your class type thing or maybe it just wasn't on my radar. So
0: it's been interesting to visit a lot of different schools. And so in terms of the schools I reached out to, I wanted to start in some regions, I thought were important. I mean, we were incorporated in Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. So, all the Pennsylvania schools, Missouri schools, and then trying to try and reach out to as many as possible. As I am speaking with students about the clerkships database and the post clerkship survey, and as I am speaking at different events where I'm an invited speaker, so it's not my programming, the questioning is a little different based on. Resources that exist at their law school. It's really interesting and it's not totally tied to the rankings. It's tied to the resources that the clerkship director and the dean provide on clerkships. There are definitely students who ask me just basic how to get a clerkship. Then there are schools in the T14 that don't conduct a post clerkship survey that have a ton of questions about that. So you can see how your first decision where you go to law school, which might've been an active decision or might've just been the best place you got into or the place that gave you the most money, is gonna have these enormous implications. And I get a lot of questions from pre-law students when I do programming at colleges. And they say, well, how do I know what law schools are doing a good job in terms of clerkship resources? Like beyond funneling people into clerkships, like helping people get beneficial clerkships that help with their careers, lifelong mentors, all the things. There is a lack of transparency there, too, and that's one of the things we hope to soon be able to shine a spotlight on, is which schools are really doing a good job of ensuring positive clerkship experiences.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I have so many questions for you, but many of them are personal,
0: (laughs) so I'll wait to
1: (laughs) it then. You Um, keep asking me questions. (laughs) I'm like, this is fun. I'm learning so much. Um. Well, like I knew that my law school was going to be different. So I'm from Ohio and we have nine law schools here, but I went to law school in Louisiana where they have four. And I'm like, there's four in Columbus. Right. So I knew it was going to be different, but I, I wasn't expecting how different it was going to be like in terms of resources. And like, I would go to an interview for a job and they'd be like, who's your father? I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, how'd you get this interview? And I'm like, I found it online, but they, they talk to people that they know. And, oh, you know, my son's in law school. He's going to turn in his application. Like, that was how they did things. And it wasn't until I got a mentor and someone who could say, hey, you should interview Kyla, where I started getting those those things. And I was like, this is still happening now. <laughs> like, 2015, yeah. people are still doing this. So, Elisa, do you have any advice for law students or young lawyers, five years or less practicing, which includes you, about what they can do with their law degree.
0: Oh, that is an excellent question. I think I'm living proof that you can do a whole variety of things with a law degree. Um, I mean, I went to law school because I did want to be a litigator. And I think that's important. Law school is an enormous investment of time and resources. And it's not always a wonderful experience. So you should only go if you want to practice law. But if you're in law school, you know, if you have a good idea for something, you should take the leap and just do it. Like you will regret not pursuing your idea if you don't try. There's a million things you can do with your law degree if you're not successful. But I mean, I use my JD every day. I have excellent pro bono counsel helping me because like whenever I look at a contract that the attorney sent over, I'm like, did I did I pass contracts? I don't know what this is. <laughs> um, but yeah, take the leap, pursue the idea. It's always possible to pivot if something doesn't go your way. But I think we need more like young leaders, more young founders. And I wish people wouldn't spend so much time getting like set up
1: with like five, 10 years of practice before they take the leap to what they're passionate about. So Aliza, thank you so much for talking to me today, all about the Legal Accountability Project and bringing accountability and democratization to judicial clerkships. That's awesome i didn't even know that was a problem like i really think you're going to teach and educate a lot of people with this episode
0: thank you thanks for having me on the podcast
1: yeah talk to you later thank you for listening to you are a lawyer if you enjoyed this episode leave a rating tell a friend about this podcast and subscribe to the show so that you never miss a new episode new episodes are released every other thursday thanks again for listening i hope you enjoyed the conversation bye